Um, before I start, I just want to tell you how challenged uh, that I've been by our time in the book of Jonah. Um, and, you know, I think through the book of Jonah, um, God has revealed a lot, a lot of my own sin and rebellion and how, uh, you know, even in the midst of my own sin and rebellion, God still comes after me. And, you know, that's the main point of Jonah. Jo- Jonah is about God's pursuit of his rebellious people. Nineveh, Jonah, you, me. And my hope is that after our brief study and look at the book of Jonah, you not only find yourself in appreci- appreciation of the richness of this book, but that you actually find yourself captivated by the great God who pursues you over and over and over again. Um, and so with that, I invite you guys to turn one last time to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Um, and these are the last 11 verses of Jonah. And so this is what uh, the, the, the word of the Lord says through this chapter. In verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come, over, come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a, God, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the, on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help now that as we come to your word, that we would find ourselves being mastered by it, that you would reveal our hearts, that you would reveal our heart motivations, our sins, all the ways in which we hide our sins, and that your word would reveal those things. And more than that, we pray that as we look at your word, as we see you, the great God who loves us, I pray that we would be not only challenged, but encouraged and also convicted to, to change and to be compassionate in the way that you are compassionate to those who do not deserve your grace and mercy. And so, Father, we thank you. We love you. We ask us in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the movie Amadeus is a fictional story that follows the rise and fall of the Italian composer Antonio um, Salieri and his vendetta against his younger rival, none other than Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And as a child, it was Salieri's dream to be a music composer. And so one day as a child, he prays to God that if God would make him a famous composer, he would in return pledge to God his life and faithfulness. And so so early on in the movie, he begins his life under this vow to God, okay? Uh, He keeps himself chaste. He tirelessly helps the poor. He teaches music for free. And eventually he does. And he becomes the Roman emperor's personal composer. Life cannot get any better. And he believes that because of his faithfulness to God, uh, God kept up his end of the deal. And so not too long after he becomes the court composer to the emperor, the young Mozart arrives in town to perform at the request of his employer. Now, Salieri attends the performance to meet Mozart, but he is immediately repulsed. He finds that Mozart is untamed, 
uh, immoral. He is self-indulgent, immature. Mozart is exactly everything that Salieri isn't. But what enrages Salieri the most is that Mozart actually possesses a musical genius that is far beyond Salieri's own abilities. It was clear that what Mozart had possessed was nothing less than a gift from God. And so while Salieri knew that Mozart was a better musician than him, he was at the same time consumed with rage and jealousy. This is what he says. It was incomprehensible. What was God up to? Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift, and there was Mozart indulging in all his directions, even though engaged to be married and no rebuke at all. Was it possible that I was being tested? Was God expecting me to offer forgiveness in the face of every offense, no matter how painful? That is very possible. All the, all the same, why, why him? Why use Mozart to teach me lessons in humility? My heart was filling up with such hatred for that little man. For the first time in my life, I began to know really violent thoughts, and I couldn't stop them. And so from then on, Salieri vowed to sabotage and destroy Mozart. And what we find in Salieri is that his diligent efforts to be pure and kind were ultimately revealed to be profoundly self-interested. God and the poor were just means to an end. He convinced himself that he was sacrificing and giving away uh, his time and energy for the poor's sake and for God's sake, but we really find that it was all actually for himself. There is no sacrifice because he was doing it for his own sake to get fame, uh, fortune, and self-esteem. And the minute he realized that his service to God and the poor wasn't gaining him the respect and abilities that he deeply craved, his heart became murderously angry. Soon the moral and respectable Salieri becomes someone capable of greater evil than the immoral and immature Mozart himself. While Mozart is irreligious, it's actually Salieri the devout who ends up in a much greater state of alienation from God. Just like Jonah. You know, when we turn our final attention to Jonah the prophet, we find that he has completely imploded. Jonah was a prophet for God. He wasn't just some regular dude. Pastors could only dream of the kind of revival that Jonah had witnessed firsthand. You would expect that for a man who has experienced miracles in his personal life and revival through his preaching would be joyful and thankful, but not Jonah. How is it possible for a man like Jonah to be to firsthand experience and enjoy God's grace for himself and end up resenting him for it when he sees God's grace in the immoral Nineveh. How is it possible to serve God and end up resenting him? It's because the more we do for God, the the easier it is to feel that God owes you something. It's because the more we do for God, the easier it is to feel that God owes you something. You know, I don't think any of us outrightly believe that God will give us stuff if we obey him. I think most of us know that that's not how God works. But I actually think that that's how our lives betray what what we think. So many of us go to school and we look at our classmates and peers thinking, that's not fair. So many of us go to work and we look at our coworkers thinking, that's not fair. So many of us look at the media and all these different people that we really admire and we just think, that's not fair. Why? Well, maybe it's because we, we go to church. Some of us, we tithe. Uh, We feel like we tried really hard to love difficult people this week. Uh, We tried really hard not to sin. We read our Bibles. We pray. And so we do all of these things with the expectation that God will make our lives the way that we want it. Less trouble, less frustration, less annoyances, more attention, more blessing, more everything. And just like Jonah, I think there are times when we wonder, what is the point of struggling, struggling to live for God, being all holy and stuff, 
if our enemies seem to have a better life than us. I think that's something that I think about a lot. Like, why do non-Christians have a better life than me, it seems? And what we find in our final chapter of Jonah is that God has an answer. God has an answer. If you've ever felt like God is unfair, God is going to speak and he is going to answer. If you've ever felt like you can't just seem to catch a break, God is going to answer. If it seems like God is kinder to your enemies than he is to you, God is going to answer here in Jonah chapter three, in, in Jonah chapter four. And so our key idea for this evening, from this passage, is we want God to come around our way of thinking, but God wants us to come around to his way of loving. We want God to come around our way of thinking, but God wants us to come around to his way of loving. And the first point is that we want God to come around our way of thinking. Now, I want you guys to turn back in your Bibles um, and look actually at verse, back at chapter 3, verse 10. And we'll start there, and we'll look from verse 10 to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. When the author's point of view shifts back to Jonah, so remember chapter 3, the point of view was really at the Ninevites, but now the author's point of view shifts back to Jonah, and when we look at Jonah, we're actually surprised to find that Jonah is angry. Well, maybe not surprised. I think we probably expected that. But if we expect to read at the end of Jonah chapter 3, we expect to read of a prophet who was supposed to have rejoiced and was contented to go back to his homeland. Because we see that Jonah himself was the recipient of God's mercy in chapter 2 and witnessed the salvation of thousands at the end of chapter 3. And the point is that there shouldn't have been a chapter 4. Okay? But that obviously isn't what happened. The the real twist of the story comes at the moment of what should have been Jonah's greatest triumph. He had preached to the most powerful city in the world at that time, and it literally brought it to its knees. And instead of gratitude or amazement, what we really see is white-hot, seething anger. Why is Jonah angry? Why is he angry? Well, Jonah is angry not because of God's judgment, not because of God's unkindness, but precisely because of God's kindness and grace. God's grace, not his justice, is the cause of Jonah's anger. Take a look at verses 2 to 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What we first need to see in these two short verses here is that there are two warnings. There are warnings that Jonah's anger reveals. Jonah stands as a warning that human hearts never change quickly or easily, even when they're being mentored directly by God. Take a look at the first warning. The first warning is that we can't bank our relationship with God on the examples and influences in our lives. You know, as a prophet of God, Jonah's full-time job was to hear from God and to speak for God. As a prophet of God, he literally heard from God and talked with God. But what Jonah's life and failure reminds us is that you can be personally tutored by mature Christians and even God himself. You can have great accountability with other fellow Christians. You can be discipled by the godliest person, but even the most privileged, intimate experiences with God and his people do not guarantee 
maturity. Even though these are all great things. You guys ever heard of Judas Iscariot? Judas was personally mentored by Jesus for three years. Walked with him, breathed the same air as him, ate the same food as him. And he sold Jesus out at at the end of those three years for 30 pieces of silver. You guys ever ever heard of Solomon? Solomon's dad was King David himself, a man after God's own heart. And yet Solomon had 700 wives who had turned Solomon's heart away from God. You know, when I was in college, I knew of so many people who thought that they were doing okay because they had the best accountability. They were being discipled by this person or that person. They were meeting up with this person, and yet I saw so many of their lives implode. If you think that accountability or the people that you surround yourself with or how much biblical wisdom that you know, if you think that those things are the source of Christian maturity, then you've got it all wrong. Because none of these things can ever be a replacement for a real relationship with the living God. Secondly, the second warning is that we can't bank our relationship with God on the experiences and situations in our life. Another warning that we see in these two short verses is that no amount of circumstantial success is any indicator that you are actually faithful to God. Okay, Jonah saw a whole city repent. Many would call that the greatest revival in all of history. But we all know that there was something going on beneath Jonah's heart. What we also see in Jonah's anger is that circumstantial success does not mean that you were actually faithful to God. And I think for so many of us, we can point to how well our lives are going and think that we're doing okay with God. Like, look at my grades. Look at the schools that I got into. Look at how much money that I'm making or will make. Or look at how many friends that I have. But none of these things are indicators of a faithful, walking relationship with God. You know, if you look at the life of King David, it was at the height of his circumstantial success that his own heart came crumbling down. It was when God had given David military success beyond all measure that David no longer kept a close check on his own heart. It was during David's military success that David committed covenant failure by committing adultery against his wife. And he murdered one of his friends. The point is that you will never think that you are susceptible to sin if you think that your life is just going well and dandy. You will never think that you are susceptible to fall if you think that your life is just going well and dandy. Now, I'm not saying that uh, circumstantial success is bad. I'm just saying that we have the propensity to look at our circumstances and think that we are doing okay. What Jonah's anger tells us is that we cannot bank our relationship with God on the examples in our life. And we cannot bank our relationship with God on the experiences of our life. If we do do that, if we bank our relationship with God on both, we are setting ourselves up for covenantal failure with God. Now, these two warnings, they don't really tell us why Jonah was angry, though. Why was Jonah really angry? We'll take a look at the last half of verse 2 again. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There it is. That is the reason why Jonah fled in chapter 1, verse 3. And it's the reason why he is so pissed off at God right now. Jonah was angry because he could not stand the fact that God was being consistent to who he was. Now, here's what Jonah, I think, purposefully omits 
and fails to include, what he purposefully omits is the context of that verse that he is using. In verse 2, Jonah, chapter, Jonah is actually quoting from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, God reveals himself, as if you remember, to Moses. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those two verses could be summed up as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Every single, if you were a good Jew, you knew that verse. That was the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Now, why does God say this? In, chapter, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. What Jonah fails to include is that just two chapters before, uh, before Exodus chapter 34, all of Israel has broken the first commandment. If you remember, they melted all the gold that they had and they created a golden calf and they said that it was the golden calf, not God, who carried them and led them out of Egypt. Creating a false god was a first commandment, capital punishment. And yet God relents of the disaster that he would do to Israel just as he relented from what he would do to Nineveh. That is what Jonah fails to include. Israel. It's not just Nineveh. It's Israel as well. Israel, Nineveh, Jonah, you and me are all in the same boat, equally deserving of God's judgment. And yet God shows mercy. So why is Jonah mad? The problem is that Jonah loves God's grace when it's shown to him but he loathes God's grace when it's shown to others who don't act like or think like Jonah. Jonah's problem isn't that he doesn't know true things about God. Jonah's precise problem is that he does not like what he knows about God. Jonah did not like where his theology led him. Let's think about it for a second. If God is really gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, then it not only means that I can receive grace and mercy, but the people that I hate can also receive grace and mercy. Do you guys see where Jonah's coming from here? It means that God may even bless people who have wronged you. People who, from whose sins you have personally suffered from. This is what Jonah has realized. Now what does this tell us? It tells us that no amount of right doctrine or correct theology can change a person's heart. No amount of right doctrine or correct theology can change a person's heart. Remember, Jonah is this prophet who can quote this verse frontward and backward in his sleep. It tells us that we don't want a God on God's terms. We want a God on our terms. For Jonah, God was too slow to anger. God was too slow to show justice. God was too quick to show grace, too quick to show mercy, too quick to show compassion. How about us? Just like Jonah, we want God to come around our way of thinking. I think it's safe to assume that you've created God in your own image when you think that God hates the same people that you hate and loves the same people you love. We want a God who makes our lives better. We want a God who makes our lives convenient, not inconvenient. We want a God who makes our lives easier, not harder. We want a God who makes our lives comfortable, not uncomfortable. We want a God on our timetable, not his timetable. And when we want that kind of God, we don't want God. We just want our version of God and pretend that we are worshiping that God. And when we have done that, 
we have actually de-godded God. We have de-godded God. If God doesn't see things my way, then I will be my own God. And therefore, it shouldn't actually surprise us that Jonah was angry then. God's grace exposed Jonah's hypocrisy. Because at the heart of Jonah's anger, he thought that he was better. All this time, Jonah thought that he was better only to find that he was actually in the same boat as the Ninevites. And you know, this is what is most frightening about Jonah's hypocrisy. Jonah knows what God says. Jonah knows what God is like. And yet he is completely apathetic and completely merciless. Why? It's because Jonah, like Salieri, like all of us, think that he is better. You know, when we, when we look at our, our classmates or our coworkers or our friends or people that we hear of in the news, how many of us think to ourselves, I would never do something like that. I would never think something like that. I would never act like that. Why do we do that? Why do we make these kinds of comparisons? It's because comparison is the main way we get to decide and achieve our own sense of significance and worth. We get to choose who deserves God's grace and not God. But here is the slow descent into the madness of comparison. It will be impossible, it will be impossible for you to forgive others if you think that you are better than others. But that is not the worst. If you feel like you're always better than others and godlier than others, you know more than others, then you will live your life believing that God and other people are just always going to owe you in some way. And if you live your life thinking that God and other people will always owe you, you will never find yourself having any need of a savior, any need of forgiveness, any need of compassion. Why? It's because you, if you feel like people and God are always owing you, then you have already become God. You don't need God. You already have yourself. You know, I was listening to a pastor who told the story of a woman who had an unfaithful and unbelieving husband. He had cheated on her continually and didn't believe in Jesus. And this lady endured this kind of treatment for 20 years of their marriage. Okay, 20 years. How many of you guys are 20? Only a few of us. Okay, at least 20. Okay? Most, of us are, most of you guys are not 20. But this lady was highly regarded in the church because every time the church doors were open, she was there. She was serving faithfully. And despite the fact that her husband was chronically cheating on her, she never left him and she stayed faithful to God, or stayed faithful to God and to him. And roughly 20 years after this, her husband actually became a Christian. So praise God. He was convicted of his sin and he was broken over and he actually repented and trusted in Jesus. And the whole church responded with rejoicing because here was this man who was once lost but is now found. Now you would think that as her husband turned to faith in Christ, that this wife would also rejoice. But just as this husband turned to Christ in faith, she actually went in the opposite direction. This woman couldn't stand the fact that her unfaithful and cheating husband could be forgiven. For 20 years, this woman probably felt like she had earned God's love because she felt like she was the better spouse because she never left her husband even though he was unfaithful. And when her husband became a Christian, she left the faith because she felt like she was just better than him. And this reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. But it actually should not be called the prodigal son. It should really be called the prodigal sons. It's not just one prodigal. There are two. The younger brother 
is unrighteous, while the older brother is self-righteous. The younger brother is irreligious, while the older brother is religious. The younger is enslaved to his immorality, but the, the older brother is enslaved to his moralism. The younger brother needs to repent of his scandalous deeds, but the older brother needs to repent of his damnable good deeds. Both are in need of grace. The real problem is that one knows it while the other is absolutely clueless. While the younger son's rebellion was far more obvious, the older son's rebellion was far more discreet and insidious. Even though the older son had never left his father, he was actually far more distant and alienated from his father than his younger brother was because he was blind to his own spiritual need and condition. The difference between Nineveh and Jonah is that Nineveh was the younger brother who recognized that he was lost. And Jonah is the older brother who did not. Nineveh is Mozart, who believed that God owed him nothing, while Jonah is Salieri, who believed that God owed him everything. Pastor Tim Keller writes that there are two ways to be your own Lord and Savior. The first way is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. But the second way is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. It's been said that that comparison is the thief of joy. But I would actually go even farther to say that comparison is actually the thief of faith. Because in saying that you are better than others, you are saying that you do not need God. How is it possible to follow God and end up resenting him? Well, it's when we want God to come around to our way of thinking and he is unwilling. Second point. God wants us to come around to his way of loving. God wants us to come around to his way of loving. Now, obviously, I don't think that thinking and loving are antithetical. Okay, that's, I'm not trying to create like a false bifurcation here. Um, but look at verse 4. In verse 4, it says, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? You know, God's response, I think, is a response that surprises all of us. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a response that is so tender, so forgiving, and so mercifully patient. Therefore, I think it's a reasonable question to ask why God just doesn't end Jonah's life as he requested in verse 3. Why doesn't God just seriously just strike him dead right there? Well, it's because God is consistent to who he is when his people aren't. God, in spite of Nineveh's sin, and even in spite of Jonah's temper tantrum, is the consistent God who is, time and time and time again, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is exactly everything Jonah has accused him of being. Why does God persist? I mean, God's goal was done, right? Like, Nineveh repented, God's job was done, That's it, right? No. The book of Jonah is ultimately about God, but it's penultimately about Jonah, not Nineveh. God, again, could have used anyone to preach salvation to the Ninevites. Jonah didn't even do that good of a job. The point is that God cares about Jonah. God cares and loves and has long-suffering on the hypocrites just as much as the irreligious. More importantly, God's question is meant to be mercifully probing. You see, the reason why God is so calm isn't because God cares about winning arguments. 
because it was never about winning arguments. God has come because he is trying to win over lost Jonah. Are you right to be angry, Jonah? Take a look at verses 5 to 8. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. I mean, this is hilarious, right? Like, I'm just trying to imagine, like, you know, Jonah has, like, a bald head, and he's, like, like, there's, like, his skin's, like, all sweltering and stuff. But um, God uses a plant in verse 6, a worm in verse 7, and a wind in verse 8. When God provides shade for Jonah, Jonah is exceedingly glad, but when God takes away the shade... Jonah is angry enough to die. But in his anger, Jonah fails to see what has really happened. Take a look at verses 9 to 10. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God is pointing out a great irony here. Jonah had no personal investment in growing the plant. He did not water it. He did not wait for it to grow. He didn't plant the seed. The plant is a completely impersonal object for which Jonah shows compassion and pity over. What's the point? We'll take a look at verse 11 again. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? If Jonah has compassion for life at the lowest value level, a plant that he neither personally watered nor cared for, shouldn't I have compassion for things at the highest value level? The 120,000 people of Nineveh or the cattle that represents the city's socioeconomic status and livelihood. What's the point? The point is that Jonah cared about a plant that he did not grow. But God cares about a people that he intimately created in his own image and will endure for all of eternity. Humanity's worst is still the crown of God's creation. You guys get that? Humanity's worst, and I'm talking about like the murderers, the rapists, the child molesters, the sexual assaulters and abusers, even they are the crown of God's creation. Crown of God's creation. Humanity's best is still the crown of God's creation. You even at your very worst and at your very best are the crown of God's creation. The point is that God does not operate on our way of thinking. God is outside of our lines. God loves the people we hate, the people that we find annoying, the people that we would never expect, the people we think are so undeserving. And the point is that God will never be whom you want him to be. You know, I think I, I can speak for all of us in this room. I think all of us, myself included, think that compassion must always be the excep- exception, not the norm. You know, like when people are caught in sin, our first response is never, wow, they really need help. Our usual response is, wow, this person is super whack. 
When people are super arrogant and rude, our first response is never, wow, they must have really had a bad day. They really need our help. Our usual response is, is this person even a Christian? So many of us love the idea of justice, but hardly ever want mercy for others. And yet when we wrong others, we never want justice for ourselves. That is the hypocrisy that God is exposing in the heart of Jonah and in you and in me. So many of us are happy when people get what they deserve. But scripture never calls us to rejoice over the evildoer. Scripture always, it always sympathizes with the sinner, even though the consequences of his or her own sin are well-deserved. If you, took, if you take a look at Proverbs chapter 24, Proverbs chapter 24, in verses 17 to 18, it says, Do not rejoice, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Scripture never calls us to rejoice over the evildoer because his reward will come soon. His judgment will come soon. God will, re- God will make vengeance on the, upon that. But scripture always sympathizes with the sinner even though the consequences of his or her own sin are well deserved. So a question that I want to ask you guys is have you set up a little booth outside the culture content to enjoy God's mercy to you while secretly savoring the misfortunes of a God-forsaken, God-alienated world. You know, of course, you're not willing that any of your friends would perish or your family or the people that you like, but what about the people that that really, really frustrate you? It seems that God is sometimes just a little too compassionate for his own good, a little too soft on sin, so we in the church need to keep a nice little fence around God's grace or God will give too much away if we let him. I think so many of us are stingy at showing compassion on people that God chooses to show compassion to. Have you ever hated God for being too compassionate? It reveals the failure to understand that you have needed God's grace every bit as much as that person who just shot up 10 kids at that high school in Texas. As much as the terrorists on 9-11, as much as that child molester, or that group of stoner kids at your school, or that super abrasive person that you know. What we really see in this passage is how much or how little compassion we show to people must never be proportional to how much sin there is or how little sin there is. Why? Well, it's because God never deals with our sin according to what we deserve. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked and not rather that he should turn away from his way and live? God doesn't delight in the misery of the wicked. He weeps at the misery of the wicked. God is far more willing to forgive than people are willing to repent. Therefore, our hearts should always go out to people who are caught in sin. Our hearts should always go out to people who are caught in sin. Our hearts need to be moved with the difficulties and sins of others regardless of the, of the cause. There are no loopholes to our love for people if God loves those very same people. Your ability to show compassion to people who don't deserve it has more to do with the condition of your heart and whether you really have experienced God's grace 
than the condition of, say, your personality. Kindness and gentleness are not an option. Compassion is not a mere matter of personal preference as of choosing between oranges and apples. It isn't because you're rougher around the edges. Your busyness can't be an excuse to love others. Not when, not when the God of grace gives and gives and gives. The point is that Nineveh and Jonah alike were in need of mercy. Mozart and Salieri alike were in need of mercy. The irreligious and religious alike are in need of mercy. The legalist and the relativist alike are in need of mercy. Every single one of us in need of mercy. If you take a look at verse 10 and 11 again, back in uh, Jonah chapter 4, the word for pity in those two verses is literally translated to look with tears. Now, Jonah's got some problems weeping over a plant that he didn't even grow. But on the contrary, that is what we see at the heart of God when he looks at lost people. What we see here in this passage is that God looks at these lost people with tears in his eyes. The moral and immoral. He sees them with tears in his eyes, both of whom are equally lost. And it reminds me of a passage in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 42. I want you guys to turn there with me. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near Jesus, when he drew near to the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jonah went outside of the city, waiting for God to drop a mushroom cloud-inducing bomb upon the city of Nineveh. But Luke tells us that Jesus went outside the city gate and he wept over his people's unbelief. We talk as if cost God nothing to show pity on a rebellious people. But God's pity came at the greatest cost when 700 years later, Jesus will be nailed to the cross for Jonah's and Nineveh's alike, telling God the Father to forgive them, for they knew not what they did. That is what God did for you and me. That is the prodigal God, who is excessive in his compassion, extravagant in his grace, and abounding in his steadfast love. If you look back at Jonah, notice how the book ends. It ends on a cliffhanger. The book doesn't tell us what happens after, but I'm inclined to conclude that Jonah actually got it and repented. How do we know? was because there are no attempts to cover up the ugliness of Jonah. This Jonah is, is completely ugly. He is for sure the villain from beginning to end. How, who else could have told this story but Jonah himself? And it's not like people were live tweeting from the belly of the fish. So much of the story is just private interactions between Jonah and God. The fact that this book exists is grace because Jonah finally, I think, got it after so many attempts of failure. You know, as we conclude our study in the book of Jonah, I pray that we would not merely just look at Jonah and see all the ways in which we identify with him or all the ways we need to just, 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 just do better. The message of Jonah is that this is the God of grace who pursues us in Christ, who himself bore all of our sins, all of our self-righteousness, all of our damnable good deeds, all of the deeds that we did for our own self-interest. And he runs after us time and time and time again. And that it points to the one who is greater than Jonah, Jesus himself, who did indeed rise or die and rise again for Jonah's and Nineveh's, for the Mozarts, for the Salieri's, for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we, 
we are surprised at your grace. How can we, how can we be recipients of your grace? God, we have sinned in so many ways. We have looked down on others. We have thought that we were better than others. Maybe some of us are more like the Ninevites, desiring to follow our own path, pursuing this sin or that sin. But Father, we realize that all of us, all, all of us equally, not measured against each other, but measured against you, will fail. And we deserve your wrath. We deserve your hell. We deserve punishment. And yet, you took our place in your son. And he is the one who took our place and died for us. And that is why we can be recipients of your grace. Not because of what we have done. Not because of what we, have didn't, we didn't do. But because of every, every single thing because of what Christ has done for us. And Father, I pray for this high school group here, even as we've been thinking through Jonah for the past month and a half, two months. God, I pray that there would be some things in this passage that would stick with these high schoolers for a lifetime. That they would be challenged and convicted and not just convicted, that they would not only stay in conviction, but that they would really grow and change and repent and be honest with their struggles with you. And that you would change them, Father. Father, I pray for all of us that as we look at the people who are really undeserving, that we would show compassion to these people. Not because it's a better thing to do, not because it's right even, because that's exactly what you've done for us in Christ. And so, Father, I pray for this group. I pray that you help us to be a people who are compassionate, marked by compassion. So, Father, we thank you. We love you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.